Take your Bibles and turn with us to Isaiah 63 and 64. Isaiah 63 and 64. Isaiah 63 and 64. Should you be interested in the book of Isaiah? It's in the daily Bible reading. You should be. You should be. Uh, for instance, uh, we're coming down to the end of the book, and in chapter 65, verse 17, the Bible says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And we have a little description of that. In the context of the new heaven and the new earth, God describes the millennial reign of Christ and then also takes us into eternity and what life is going to be like. And so I would be interested, especially in these day and age when, when in, at this time when we're thinking about what the future holds, you know, uh, how modified is everything going to have to be and how long and, and what's going to happen after that. So these are very big concerns. But here's another good reason, too. We look at the nation of Israel today, and we wonder how on earth the nation of Israel is going to survive the fact that the world seems to be against it. But I want to just refer to a couple of passages of Scripture. Again, this is motivation for you. In Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah chapter 60, the Bible says to us in verse 3, I'm just going to pick and choose a couple of verses here. The Gentiles shall come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. And he is addressing the nation of Israel. They are going to be, during the millennial reign of Christ, the nation of Israel is going to be the primary uh, nation that's going to be sharing the gospel. Um, it's incredible when God uh, converts the Jewish people. But anyway, look at verse 5. The Bible says, Then you shall see and become radiant, and your, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of your sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. How about that? Uh, how about verse 9? Uh, Surely the coastlines shall wait for me. Uh, that's the Lord speaking. And the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. Uh, verse 10, how about verse 10? The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. And uh, you can read down through that passage of Scripture. And I only bring it to your attention because uh, the Bible is going to spend a lot of time in the book of Isaiah describing what life is going to be like in the future and what God's plan in history is going to be for, for not only His church but His Jewish church as well. And so we want to keep all of that in mind. Okay, having said that, in the remaining minutes that we have, and this will not take long, but I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 63, Isaiah chapter 63 and uh, 64. And what I want to do is I want to share four very, three very quick things with you. I want you to notice that in Isaiah chapter 63, Isaiah looks ahead. In Isaiah chapter 63, in verse 7 and following, he looks back. And then in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 15, he looks up. All right? So he looks ahead, he looks back, and he looks up. All right, the first one, but let's pray. Father, we just pray for your blessing on your word. Uh, may we understand it and see its application for us in our lives. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen. All right, Isaiah looks up, chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom, 
with dyed garments from Basra. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who is it? And then you have him speaking. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then in verse 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And then he answers, the person speaking answers, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all of my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has Come. Now, I just want to just, just give you an idea without exploring this and, and figuring out step by step what this is referring to. Let me simply say to you that this is, this is about Christ uh, returning from the Battle of Armageddon uh, on his way to Jerusalem. Um, and so the Battle of Armageddon is yet to come. It's going to precede the millennial reign of Christ. And I just want to bring to your attention Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19, where we have a very similar description of Jesus coming. And uh, in verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now here's the, here's the, here's the verse that I want you to notice. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he shall strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself shall tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the illustration that Jesus uses in this passage of Scripture that Isaiah is looking ahead about, the reason, the, the illustration he's using is a winepress where people will get in this big vat of grapes and they'll just, uh, just stomp on the grapes and in stomping the grapes, some of, the, some of the grapes will splatter or splash onto their clothing. So that's what he does. He looks ahead. Now, I want you to know something. I want you to notice that in looking ahead, Isaiah has already given to us Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Now, flip back to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. If you want to figure out the future and if you want to be encouraged... And you want to, and, and all of us should be, be really gluing our eyes to what the Bible has to say about the future. There are so many, so many things yet to come. And so in Isaiah 61, notice what it says in verses 1 and 2. These are just, the, the, just these first couple of verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That's Jesus speaking. Because the Lord has anointed me. To preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. 
When you and I look at Isaiah, we say, oh, this is all about the first coming of Christ. There's so many prophecies about the first coming of Christ and the details of that coming. Well, Isaiah is all about the second coming of Christ as well. I want to remind you of Luke chapter 4 when Jesus went into Nazareth to the synagogue there. And when he went into Nazareth, the synagogue, he was handed the scroll. And you'll remember that he turned to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And you'll remember that when he turned to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, you'll remember that he read those verses in verse 18 of chapter 4 of Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What didn't he say? He didn't say, and the day of vengeance. Because the acceptable year of the Lord refers to His first coming, the day of vengeance refers to His second coming. So Isaiah is looking ahead to the second coming of Christ. As sure as Jesus was here the first time, he's coming back the second time. In verse 20 of Luke chapter 4, the Bible says that Jesus closed the book and gave it back to the attendant because that was not the time for him to share the day of vengeance. You'll remember in John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. There are several other passages of Scripture in the Bible where Jesus talks about the fact that He came to save, not to condemn. That is why when we say to people, uh, when they use slang or foul language and they say, uh, uh, go to blank, we say it's diametrically opposed to anything that the Bible teaches because we're not to judge people before the day of judgment. That person may end up being saved. Uh, in your anger, maybe we say things like that. But Jesus came to save when the disciples wanted Jesus to call fire down from heaven in Luke chapter 9 on that Samaritan village. You remember what Jesus said to them, I didn't come to destroy them. I came to save them. That's the first coming of Christ. But he has the second coming of Christ in mind in, in, in Isaiah chapter uh, th 63 verses 1 and following. There's a day coming when Jesus is not going to uh, be in the business of saving people. He's going to be judging, and it's called the day of vengeance. So we need to look ahead to the second coming of Christ. We need to spend a lot of time thinking about that. And if it does nothing else to help us to understand that this is the time, the age of grace in which we live is the time to get the gospel out, you and I ought to recognize that the church has the biggest responsibility of any organization on the face of the earth to get the gospel out. Amen? There are billions of people out there who need to hear it. Number two, Isaiah not only looks ahead, but he looks back. 63 verse 7. After he, after he looks ahead, he says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us. And the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies. According to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior in all of their affliction. He was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. If you recognize this passage of scripture, you recognize he's going back to the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. 
He's going back to the Old Testament. And notice what he does when he goes back and he looks back on the history of Israel. He looks back on God who is identifying with the sufferings of the children of Israel. For he said, verse 8, Surely they are my people. So he became their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But it didn't matter. They rebelled. But the implication of this is he calls them his children, which means that he is recognizing the fact that he is a heavenly father over his children. I have lots of notes here that I rewrote because I forgot my notes this morning. So maybe I shouldn't rewrite things because then I add more to it. Than <laughs> but anyway, having said that, I want you to think of God as our heavenly father. It's recognition of fathers today, right? And this is what fathers do. But, you know, instead of giving you my personal opinion, let me just read you one passage of Scripture from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. Again, this is God talking about His relationship with the children of Israel. He is a father to them. And in being a father to them, He acknowledges in verse 6, Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Apparently they're not dealing with Him in the right way. Is he not your father who bought you and has made you and established you? God is your father who has made you and established you. Look at verses 10 and following. We'll just read this. He found them in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled them. He instructed him. He kept him in the apple, as the apple of his eye. And as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreads out its wings, taking them up, Carry them on its wings. I don't know about you. This, this is a fantastic description of our Heavenly Father. And He's a model to us. Our Heavenly Father is a model to us. We do these things as dads because that's what dads do. And so the Lord alone led him, led him, and there was no foreign God with him. Verse 12, he made him ride in the heights of the earth and he, that he might eat the produce of the fields and made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat, and you drank wine, the blood of the grapes. And I'm only bringing that out to you um, as an illustration of the fact that God provides for us and He protects us as good fathers do. And I, the application is quite clear. Can we be the kind of dads that God wants us to be? kind of dad that he is to us. And I just want to bring this to your attention here. Uh, I will not refer to it. I'm almost done. But I will not refer to it in my, my third point here. But in the third point, when Isaiah looks up, he describes God. Doubtless, you, verse 16, you are our father. You are our father. And these are the things you've done for us because you are our father. Now, he complains like a rebellious child that God made him stray from his ways. But that's what rebellious children do. But in verse 8 of the very same chapter, but now, O Lord, you are our father. You are the clay and you are potter. And we need you to be involved in our lives. Fathers need to be involved in the lives of their children or mentors like fathers. Well, the third point. Isaiah looks up, and that begins in verse 15. 
Isaiah looks up. In verse 15, it's a prayer. And Isaiah gives this prayer. It begins in verse 15. It goes through chapter 64 all the way to verse 12. And in this prayer, I want you to notice what happens. In Isaiah's mind, in verse 15, he's asking God to look down from heaven and see from his habitation that's holy and glorious. Look down. You are loving, you, are, you have zeal for us, you have strength for us, you yearn for us, your mercies are toward us, and it looks to us like they're restrained. It looks like all of these things you are to us, we don't get to see. Lord, where are you? Why don't we see these things? Why does it look like you aren't there? And it builds in Isaiah 15. He says, look down. But when he gets to chapter 64, verse 1, he says, Oh, that you would rent the heavens and that you would come down. Don't just look down, Lord, but come down and display your power. How many times have you asked the Lord during this time to come down and display his power? Come on, you've done it, haven't you? You've asked him, Lord, we need the world to see who you are. We need the world to see that you are the power behind all of the good things that happen and you control everything, good and bad. And Father, we want people to see your power and your presence. Come down. And by the way of illustration in chapter 64, verses 1 and following, he says, I want you to, Lord, please come down like you did Back there in Exodus chapter 19, when you caused Mount Sinai to, to, to uh, be on fire and all that smoke and all that, all that earthquake and all of that stuff so that everybody could see your power, come down, come down. And um, yes, Isaiah is frustrated. He's very frustrated. We know he's frustrated by the the questions that he asked the Lord in this prayer. And I just, I want you now to uh, look at the end of this prayer. Uh, the questions that he asked the Lord in this prayer are, um, are um, um, Lord, uh, well, I, I wrote all the questions down. But, uh, but anyway, read through the passage of Scripture and you will see the questions that he asked. You can sense his frustration. You know, you did awesome things in the past, but we don't sense your power and your presence. You're restrained in verse 15. You have made us strange, stray from your ways in verse 17. That's out of frustration that, that he asks these questions. And um, as if he doesn't have a, a real reason for it, he adds the reason in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, and 12. He says, but now, O Lord, you're our Father. Verse 9, do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember your iniquity forever. Verse 10, your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. And then the last two questions. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us? Very severely. Yes, he's frustrated. But in looking ahead, he sees the future. In looking back, he sees how God has taken care of them in the past. And in looking up, he's begging God 
change the circumstances, to make things right, to make things better. And I got to quit there. Uh, you know, we're trained in seminary not to do this, but I have to quit there because God responds in chapter 65. God's answer to that prayer begins in chapter 65. So you know what we're going to do next week, right? We're going to take a look at God's response to Isaiah's frustration as he represents the people of Israel. And so uh, let's, uh, let's close uh, together our service. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we live in a day of a, an age, the age of grace. We live in a period of time when you have given the mission of your church to the mission of the church to share the gospel around the world. We're not here to condemn. We're not here to, we're here to set the record right that all of sin and come short of your glory and the wages of sin is death. And Father, we are to alert people to what is coming if people do not repent, if people do not come in faith and receive the offer of eternal life that you have given to this world. Help us to be faithful as a church to do that. Help us to be more faithful to do that. Help us to see in these trying times that, that it's more urgent for us to share your word in the gospel than it's ever been before. And be with all of our missionaries who are doing that faithfully. But Father, we pray in your precious name that you remind us as we look ahead, there's a day of vengeance coming. Lord, when you're going to come as the judge. When you're going to come and you're going to judge the world of sin. Father, we ask in your precious name that as we think of that, that it changes our hearts and a heart of a nation as well. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together as we close our, song, our service with our song of invitation, Into My Heart, Into My Heart. All of the songs that we picked today were, uh, didn't take a lot of energy. We tried to pick some songs that didn't take a lot of energy, so you just had to belt it out. Um, and uh, this is a song for the heart, right? Because if you're singing in your heart, that's okay. It's the heart, you know, it's better than just with my mouth. But what's in my heart? Into my heart, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Is Jesus the Savior of your heart? Not just of your head. Not just of your speech. Let's sing it together. Will you come to Christ as we sing? If you don't know Him as Savior, say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I want you to save me from all of my sin. I know you died on the cross to pay the penalty that I deserve. Let's sing it together. Into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Gracious Lord, help us to help us to live for you in a way that honors you and glorifies you this week. We pray for your protection. We pray, Lord, for your guidance and direction. We pray, Lord, that you'd keep us safe till we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen.